Well, anyway, good morning, everybody. Uh, it's good to see you today. Today we start a study of the two letters of Paul. We're going to put them together, First and Second Thessalonians. If you have a New Testament, I'd like you to turn to Acts 17 as I <clears throat> begin to introduce the book. What I have, uh, the sheet that just went around, uh, you, those of you who didn't have a hard copy of the notes got those, and then I gave you a map of Paul's missionary journeys, which we're going to look at in just a minute as well. But I'd like you to take a look at this map, the one that just um, came around or is making its way around. You'll see down here in the uh, key of the map, the box, the key where you get all the information, Via Ignatia. See that? That's the name of a road. Now, the only reason I'm saying that, and I, I think you can see this, you can see the line. There's a dotted line here on your left to the west side of the map, a dotted line that connects it to uh, Italy. But then this line, if you just, you can follow it, goes across Macedonia all the way over to the Black Sea. You see it? You see what I'm doing? That was a major east-west road. And if, again, I want you to look carefully, Thessalonica, mm -hmm. right here, is right in the center of that road. Now, the reason I'm pointing that out, that is one of the reasons Paul chose Thessalonica. Now, I believe this very, very strongly. I believe that Paul was a strategic thinker. I think he, was, he strategized where best to plant churches. He was careful in what he did. I mean, it wasn't just serendipitous. Okay, I think I'll stop here and let's see if we can plant a church here. That's not how Paul did things, in my judgment. And I'm not the only one thinking that. But he planned, and he was thinking, when I'm, when I'm done planting churches in the Eastern Mediterranean, I want to go to the Western Mediterranean. I want to plant churches in Spain, which we know he wanted to do. <clears throat> and we'll, we'll talk about that at the very end of this, this uh, study. So he plants a church in this key city of Thessalonica, almost in the center of one of these major east-west road networks. Because remember, the Roman Empire was all about roads. The road system is what kept everything together. So if you're going to plant a church in one of the strategic centers of a major east-west road, why would you do that? <coughs> That wasn't rhetorical. That was. <laughs> Why would you do that? Transport information. There are going to be a lot of people coming through Thessalonica, aren't they? There are going to be a lot of people going east and west, merchants, traders, going east and west. So you're going to be able, the church is going to be able to share the gospel with them. Paul's strategy always was plant a key church, get a bunch of people discipled, and then they'll take it from there. And so this church at Thessalonica that he planted, he planted in a very strategic city. Another key thing about this is what I'm doing in that introductory, the background, in that first uh, point there, if you're following in your outline. Secondly, Thessalonica was a free city. Now what, what that means is, <clears throat> and there are reasons it goes back to the city was rewarded for supporting some key leaders earlier, in the history of the Roman Empire. But the point is, it was a free city, which means it did not need to pay all the taxes that went to Rome. And there were a significant number of liberties that they were permitted to, 
to uh, to participate in and and uh, and, uh, and enjoy that other cities didn't. So again, why Thessalonica? Mm, there are some good reasons. And thirdly, there was a very and we don't know exactly the numbers, but there was a fairly large Jewish population there. So all of those things kind of come together that is part of Paul's strategic thinking. This is where I'm going to spend some time. I'm going to plant a church there. I'm going to get a, a bunch of leaders discipled, and then I'm going to move on. And So if you go to the other map that I gave you last time, wherever I... Gave that. Uh, oh, please. Paul's in Corinth. He's writing the letter from Corinth. He's, and this is like current country. Like, what is it? Modern day what? Modern day. Uh, there is a modern day city of Thessalonica. And in which country? In, it would be in Greece. Greece. Yes, the country of Greece. At that time, uh, at that time, it would have been known as Macedonia, but. It was a part of Greece. Now, if you take a look at the other map that I gave you, I, I think we gave this the last time we were here. Um, the, the front is the second missionary journey. The back is the third missionary journey. Are you with me? I know I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you. Is everybody tracking with me? You, you see what I'm doing? All I want you to do is I want you to just take a look. <clears throat> this is a little simpler, but it doesn't show the, the, the road system, which I wanted you to see. Thessalonica is right here. Okay, I mean, you can see it. It's the same place the other map is. <laughs> but Thessalonica. Then what Paul does, and what this is what it's charting, he goes down to Berea. This is his second missionary journey. And then down to Athens, and then Corinth. He is in Corinth when he's writing this letter. Does everybody see that? I, I just want you to have... I mean, you really, to me, when you study the scriptures, you should do all you can, particularly if it's a narrative, uh, whatever, uh, teaching, and they're mentioning places, you should probably try to find out where they are, because it gives meaning to the geography of what is going on uh, in this particular period of church history. And, and this is the middle of his second missionary journey. And I want to talk a little bit about why he writes this letter, but I want you to see the geography. Technically, technically, this would have been called Macedonia, and this would have been called Greece. Now today, this is all part of the country of Greece, but that's one sense neither here nor there. So do you sort of have your anchor of the geography? Do you, you got, a, got a good idea of what's going on here geographically? So, so is he about 40 years old? Who? 40? Paul? Yeah. It's, uh, it's AD 50. 51 AD. Yeah, he's, he's about, maybe about almost 40, 43 or 44 years old. And then he, and he, and he lived, 68. AD 68 is when he's executed. <clears throat> so he, these journeys weren't just some short deal. I mean, well, no, they're, they're 30 years or Yeah, so. and then he, uh, then he goes to Rome, and that's at the very end of the book of Acts. And, uh, and, and then... I think he was released from prison there and uh, in, in about A.D. 64, 65, early 65, and had another three years of ministry, and he did go to the West. He did go to, to Spain. So it's a, it's a lot easier to 
that, that his books are indisputable. I mean, I think the whole Bible is, but people always try to think about the part of the Bible when it was written. So that's pretty indisputable. I mean, 30 years he's writing these books, he's talking to people. Well, you can, you can, you can, verify, uh, you can verify a lot of what the Apostle Paul did and the events to which he refers from things outside of Scripture. So, I mean, you can validate a lot of it, but, you know. I mean, I don't need to, but I'm just saying. No, no that's, well, it's part of our Sometimes apologetic. Pick it out. It's part of our apologetic. We should be able to uh, to so defend I, those things. Jim. Yeah. He, he visited Thessalonica, mm-hmm. and he wrote, went down to Corinth, and he wrote back after he had visited them. That's right. Reflecting on what he experienced. That's right. And there are some reasons why he does that, uh, why he writes them this letter, which I want to talk about in just a minute. Uh, first and second, no, the second uh, letter will be written a little bit later. We'll talk about that when we get to Second Thessalonians. Yeah, sure. All right. Any basic questions? So you're with me now. What I thought we would do, and, and again, if you're following the outline, the second bullet, the founding of the church, second mission church. I thought we'd just read the text, and it's in Acts 17, the first. Uh, Uh, several verses, one through nine. It isn't a lot of detail, but I want you to see a couple of things. Now, you can take your map, the second one, the one that has the missionary journey, you can take your map and you can chart these cities that you see in verse one. You can chart, you can see exactly where Paul's moving. Is everybody with me? We're in Acts 17, verse one. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. If you look on your map, you can see those cities. Where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, I, I said that in my introductory comments. There was a fairly good-sized Jewish population in Thessalonica. And according to Paul's custom, verse 2, he went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And as, as um, Luke, Luke wrote the book of Acts, and as Luke is telling us, According to Paul's custom, what does that mean? Every time he went to a city, the first place he went was the synagogue. Why? Establish a base. Say it again, please. Establish a base. Establish a base. Why wouldn't he go to the Temple of Apollos and establish a base there? Sure. What kind of believers? Believers in the Okay, not necessarily that Jesus is the Messiah, but these are people who had the 39 books of the Old Testament were clearly understanding who God is, what he was doing, and that there's a Messiah coming. So when it says, secondly, in the second half of verse 2, that he reasoned with them from the scriptures, what do you think he's doing? Using their own words. To show that Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah. So what do you think he did? Did he read all the detailed Levitical law to them? Or do you think he took all of the key prophecies? There are 327 specific prophecies without question that refer to the specific Messiah fulfilled in Jesus, as well as another 200 prophecies that deal with events associated with him. 
So it's, I mean, I'm sure among many other things, Paul talked about Isaiah 53, where it talks about the suffering servant who will die for his people. Uh, he would have alluded to Psalm 22, which talks about dying on a cross. Psalm 16, which talks about the Messiah being resurrected. So he would take the prophecy, say, here's what Jesus did, what conclusion should you reach? He is our Messiah. Now I'm saying all that because, again, uh, this is an important point to me because sometimes we, we don't think this way. Paul is very strategic in what he's doing. And so this is part of his strategy, and I loved how you put it. I want to get a base from which we can reach out to the rest of the city, and the most logical base to get is Jews. And it tells us in verse 3, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had suffered and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now, it's a definite article, the Christ. Christ is Greek for what Hebrew word? Messiah. Messiah. So all he's done, in these first two verses, uh, well, it's actually the verse 2 and verse 3, he's just telling, here's Paul's strategy, here's what he did, and here was the conclusion. I want you guys to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 4, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of God fearing Jews and a number of the leading women. Now, I, if you're following that, verse 4 is telling us three groups of people formed the church. Jews who converted, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. God-fearing Greeks. Whenever the book of Acts uses God-fearing Greeks, it's referring to Greco-Roman people who had converted to Judaism. They were going to the synagogue. They were worshiping in the synagogue. They were getting the instruction of the New Testament. They heard Paul. They responded. They're persuaded. And then also quite strategically, a number of the leading women. The New Testament always stresses the women that come to faith. Because Jesus Christ liberates women as well as men. But this was so important. And uh, you see this, we get some, and sometimes we miss this, how important the New Testament is in stressing women. The key financial supporters of Jesus' ministry, Luke 8 tells us this, were women. Wealthy women. They were his key supporters. Phoebe, Romans 16, a very key church leader. And I'm saying all, that, all, all I'm saying is the New Testament does not in any way hold back from how significant the liberating power of the gospel was. Women are coming. And it tells us leading women because in the Greco-Roman world women were in business. Uh, it tells us when we remember we studied Phil, uh, Philippians and we looked at the founding of the Philipp, uh, Philippian church Lydia. She was a woman, one of the key leaders. And and so on. So that's all it's doing. Then verse 5. Okay, so you have three groups. That's the base. They're the people that will form the church. Verse 4. Excuse me, verse 5. What's the first word? But. But. Whenever you see that word, it's always contrast. But the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. 
And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. I want to stop there for just a minute. When it says in verse 5, the Jews, that is used so often in the New Testament, it's just that body of Jewish people who rejected the teaching that Jesus is the Messiah. This is an anti-Semitic statement. It's just saying these are the people who rejected the message. And what they did is they went down to the Agora, the marketplace in the city, and, and perhaps even hired some of these people which was not an unusual thing to do, to join this mob. And then did you notice, this is really, really, it's both humorous, but it's also enlightening. What they said in verse 6, these men who have upset the world. What does that mean? They rocked their boat, you know, and he went against their teaching. Rabble-rousers? <laughs> they're rabble but not that they're revolutionaries trying to overthrow the Roman government. That's not what it means. How are they turning the world upside down? Through the message that Jesus is the Messiah. That is a controversial, provocative teaching. Apollos isn't. Jupiter, uh, he's the name of the Greek god Zeus, Jupiter, I mean, they're not the key ones. It's Jesus. And we know this. It's just, it's really fascinating. There's a book out, Those Who Turned the World Upside Down. Where'd they get the title from this verse? Because the early church leaders, they were, they were turning the entire worldview of the Greco-Roman world upside down. But they, they weren't saying Jesus was replacing God. But they still couldn't accept it. Yeah. Now, do you, when, 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 are you referring to the Jews responding to this? Okay. No. no. I'm saying Paul was not teaching that there was no God. Oh, or that no. Jesus was the God. I mean, there's still a three entities, isn't it? They didn't have the Spirit, it, they didn't have Jesus. Okay, what was the word you used? There's still not what? What was the word you used? I didn't, I didn't hear your word. I think entities. In? In other words, in? Father, Son, and Trinity. Oh, oh, the Trinity. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's doubtful that, uh, it would be doubtful that he's going into that kind of, of detail. Um, but would he, so I'm not quite sure what's in back of your question. question but he's not teaching them, forget about God, you have to worship Jesus. Forget about the sacrifices. For, uh, well, for if he's saying to the Jews, he's saying one thing. To the Greco-Romans, he's saying another thing. But the consistency of the message is: there's one God. He's revealed Himself in Jesus. For you Jews, He's the Messiah. For you who is coming out of the Greco-Roman, He is the one true God. So it's the same point. Yeah, it's the same point. But it's you're, you're dealing with. A different message you're addressing for the Jews, a different message you're addressing for the Greco-Roman. The Greco-Roman world believed the world was filled with many gods. The Jews believed there's one God. The message to the Jews is the one true God has revealed himself in Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah. Whereas in the Greco-Roman world, it's you have a world filled with many gods. I'm telling you there's one God. 
the one who's created everything and the one who's revealed himself now in Jesus. He has come to redeem the human race from their sin. What is the nature of the Messiah and the mindset of the Jews before the message to Paul or, or the Messiah? They were waiting for the Messiah. The king. They thought he was going to be a king. So what is well, the nature of him? Is, is that? It, because right now when you talk to the Jew, they say there is no way God would come on earth. And this is why they reject the message of Jesus. So what is the, you know, the, the nature of Jesus or the Messiah supposed to be? I think for the most part, uh, and there are variations even in the first century, but for the most part, from what we see in both the extra-biblical literature that we can read as well as what you see in the accounts of the Gospels and how they're responding to Jesus, the consistency seems to be they wanted a political leader who would liberate them from the oppression of Rome. So it's it's more of a uh, I mean I'll use uh, well in a way a new liberator it, it's but it's very politicized and that's a word in the 21st century we all know but it's a very politicized view of Messiah who is going to um, liberate us from the oppressive taxation and oppressive rule of Rome and will be free um, that is there's truth to that. But that's only a little tiny aspect of the truth, because as the Old Testament prophecies and the New Testament clearly declares, before he can reign and rule, he must first die for his people's sin. But that Messiah, that idea of a Messiah, today the idea of Messiah is a very distorted idea in Judaism. I mean, it's... the Messiah so they can Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Fred? Jim, is there a parallel uh, that we have when we, sh- when we share Christ with someone today that they may say, well, you know, I don't believe you get to heaven through one source or, I mean, can you draw a parallel between what was happening here and maybe what happens when we share Christ with someone today? Is there some, is there a parallel there? Well, I think there are two things that I, I always think are important. Number one, make sure you have a fairly clear understanding of where this person's at. You understand what I mean by that? Whoever, whomever you're talking to, assuming we're talking about it, your question is assuming it's a one-on-one type of conversation. You need to make sure you understand where that person's at. You know, are, for example, are they Jew, are they Hindu, or the Buddhist, are they a secularist, or what's their image or view or understanding of God? I mean, you just have to have some kind of a... And so therefore, a conversation is probably pretty important. I really enjoy the approach Bill Fay, uh, who I think he's done some of the wonder, most wonderful stuff for reaching postmodern people. But Bill Fay's uh, approach to evangelism is you you begin, you develop a relationship, you just begin to ask people simple questions. In a, fay, in a way, you're sort of asking permission. Um, I'm just curious. You know, you've had coffee with him a couple times. Just make up a name, Bob. I'm just curious. Um, to you, who's Jesus? How do you understand Jesus? And the, the person's either going to respond or they're going to say, well, I really don't want to talk about this. Let's get another cup of coffee. Or, you know, oh, well, I'll tell you, to me, Jesus isn't, and whatever they're going to say. And you hear it, you listen, you respond to it, and you say, listen, Bob, I'm just curious, do you mind if I share to you, with you who Jesus is to me? Now, what Faye is saying is in the postmodern world, in post-Christian culture in which we live, people... People are so tolerant, they don't particularly care what you believe, just that you believe something. As long as it works for you, that's good. 
And you're saying to well, you know, I'm, I want to just hear. How do you see Jesus? And you ask permission. Uh, can I share? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then if they're responding, you say, would you, would you like, would you like to enter into a relationship with Jesus, who is the living God in the flesh, who died for our sins? He is the key. I mean, you, you, but you, this is assuming you have some kind of a relationship with that person. Now, it isn't the only way, but I found uh, in the last uh, decade particularly, people's response, I mean, I've shared the gospel with a number of people, and they'll say, well, you know, I'm really glad that works for you. <laughs> but that's not for me. That's a very different response than what you would get 20 years ago. You know, where, where somebody would push back and say, that's ridiculous, that's stupid, I don't believe in that, or whatever their response could be. It's a much more kind of blasé, I'm just so thankful that works for you, but that's not for me. You know, and it is for them, but it's just that it's a different kind of pushback. And so I think trying to really understand where the person is should shape how you're going to present Jesus to them. But you must get around eventually. And that's, that's, that's the line in the sand. The exclusive nature of Jesus. I think the book you wrote about it on how to, how to approach different people from different religions yeah. was really helpful for, for me to think about it. You know. Oh, thank you. That was one of the reasons we wrote it. You know, to help was that people. five years ago or six years ago? Uh, the World Views book... Oh, Matt, I'm getting old. No, it was about seven years ago. Seven years ago? But get that book. Yeah. <laughs> what, what's the title, Jim? The Truth About Worldviews. Truth. So what the, I don't know if there's such a thing as the average Jew, but the average Jew in America today. Today? Are they, are they still waiting for Messiah, or are they just kind of... No, uh, there are about six, there are about six and a half million Jewish people that live in the United States. And the vast majority of that six and a half million would be Reformed Jews who are rather secular. So do they have a... It, they, typically in Reform, in Reform Judaism, they do not have at the kind of the center that they're anticipating and looking for a personal Messiah. So they just kind of... Yeah, that whole expectation. Uh, pretty much so. They have the traditions. Yeah, it's the traditions. For, for them, a Jew is an ethnic. Now, these are, um, these are broad statements, Joel, but generally speaking, as an ethnic uh, understanding of who I am as a person and the heritage that is 2,400 years old. That defines who I am. Excuse me, 3,400 years old. That defines who I am. Would, would those Jews be looking at the same type of liberation? modern-day Jews as these... Well, one of the things... See, that's part of what has has created this very interesting dynamic because Reformed Judaism was born in the 19th century. It's young. But it's a... Um, it's... Um, it's it's just very secular. I don't know what other word to use. It's more holding on to the heritage and traditions and ethnicity. Not... This. practicing a, a lot. You know, do they go to synagogue? Yes, often. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and remember, there is no temple, there's no sacrifice, there's no priesthood, none of that stuff exists. It's teaching and it's gathering together and it's, it's doing a lot of things. I mean, the, the Jewish, the one thing about the Jewish people, they're very active. Jewish communities, they're very active. They're active in a lot of, of community work. 
They're, they're, they're very, they're almost always on the front line of protecting people, helping people. You know, the nation of Israel, whenever there's an, an international catastrophe, they're one of the first countries to send people to help. Rarely does that get reported in the news, but they're, they're almost, Haiti, they were the first country to show up in Haiti in that, Salam. what was that, uh, terrible hurricane uh, a couple years ago. Uh, and, and almost every international disaster, the Jews are the first ones are. All right, now, we are really, really getting away from the text. When are we going to say that? So can we come back? So just finishing one more point, verse 7, back in Acts 17, we're almost done. We'll go to first Thess now. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So what does that tell us? It tells us something that you see in the first Thessalonian letter and the second Thessalonian letter. Paul taught them eschatology. Paul taught them last things. Because every chapter in first and second Thessalonians ends with a promise about the return of Jesus. It's the only book in Paul, collection of books in Paul's writings that does that. For reasons that we don't exactly know, but for reasons that are clear in how the Thessalonian material is presented, Paul really stressed eschatology to them. And so it's natural that these guys who are stirring up this mob are saying, he's teaching of another king, another king, which, remember, the key teaching of the Roman Empire, Caesar is Lord. They had deified. The Caesar cult is, is really beginning to gain traction. So it's really shrewd, isn't it, on their part? What they want to do is get these guys charged with sedition. That's what they're trying to do. Because if you charge them with sedition, what's the penalty for sedition? Yeah. <laughs> you lose your head. And Paul's a Roman citizen, so that's how he would be executed. And so it tells us they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason, more than likely that Greek word means Jason paid a bribe, and the others, they released them. And the brethren immediately sent Paul, Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. So now um, uh, we're kind of done. So what we learn is that there were three groups of people that formed the core of the church, the, the, the base of the church, but the reaction. But we also learned something that what Paul was teaching was causing them to focus on Jesus as king, and that's threatening to Rome. That's how they stirred up the crowd. So there was nobody of new believers whatsoever, like completely coming out of, you know, like the, the Gentiles? There's no... God-fearing, God-fearing Greeks. Yeah. They would be Gentiles. The God-fearing Greeks would be Gentiles. That's correct. And then they became Christians. That's correct. Nobody that was started off as a believer in Jesus Christ. For, uh, just right out of the Greco-Roman worldview, uh, it, it's, it's not specifically telling us that there. And that doesn't mean that there weren't. It's just identifying these are three groups of people, and it's, it's pretty important, these three that he's choosing. 
but it would seem to me that others are going to come in because it grows. This church grows quickly. At least we're house churches, though. That's correct. All of the meetings, they're all house churches. There is no building that doesn't come till the 300s. I mean, there's probably only a million people in the area to begin with? Well, you're not talking. talking. For the most part, in all of these areas, talking about the whole Roman Empire, you're in the millions. But in these areas, you're not talking in the millions. You would be talking like Corinth's population, and that was a very, very large city. The population of Corinth might have been close to 200,000. Thessalonica is probably more like 30,000. Yeah, that may even be on the high end. Let's look at the text now. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians, okay? As you're turning in that introductory sheet in the note packet that I gave you, um, Paul is in Thessalonica three weeks or so, and he he writes his letter from Corinth, and that's what I, I bolded that in the middle of the first page. It's early, fifty one fifty two, because these, this is his second missionary journey. So that's early, and it involved uh, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and we'll 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 see that in the very first uh, verse of chapter one. I give you some reasons why Paul wrote the book. To explain why he had not yet returned to visit them, his affection for them, to fill in their lack of doctrinal knowledge, and it's largely end times teaching. He's filling that in, and to correct some errors in how they were living. These people took, excuse me, some of these people took some of the teachings that Paul was teaching about end times, saying, well, then we should quit our jobs, put on white robes, and go up on the mountain and wait for Jesus to return. That's what some of them were doing. And so Paul corrects that and says, don't help those people. If they don't work, they don't eat. Now, those who are against welfare always use that verse, but it has something to say, and we'll get to that when we get to it. I don't want to get to it now. So let's start chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of, of Thessalonians. Very first verse, Paul, Silas, Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Now, look at those three. Paul rarely does this. But these are the three people who are with him on the first, excuse me, on the second missionary journey there in Corinth. You know who Paul is. Silas. Who's Silas? What do we know? Do you know know anything about him? Probably not. Silas was a a Roman citizen. He was a key leader in the Jerusalem church, and he was Paul's sidekick during the second missionary journey. He was the key man right next to Paul during the entire second missionary journey. In the the book of Acts, uh, Luke wrote the book of Acts, Silas keeps coming up during the second missionary journey. Who's Timothy? Timothy's a Greek. His mother was a Jewish Christian. When Paul is writing this letter, and Timothy's with him, Timothy is a teenager, a late teenager. His mother had led him to Christ, but Paul discipled him. Why do you think Paul took Timothy with him? 
to disciple him. Paul saw something in Timothy. He saw the potential in Timothy. And he said, here is a future leader. I'm going to invest in him. And the best way to invest in somebody is take them alongside and show them the ropes. So it's, it's instructive that he itemizes. Remember, this is early. AD 51 is early in Paul's ministry. He was called out for the first missionary journey in AD 48. So this, I mean, this is early. Paul came to know Christ in AD 33. So, I mean, you're still early in Paul's uh, ministry. All right. Now, if you look at the, the, the way I've outlined it there in your notes and so on, um, this first section... Where is Peter at that time? I'm sorry? Peter, where is Peter at that time? You know, Mark, to be very honest, we don't know exactly. Um, this is early. The Jerusalem Council had been in A.D. 49. That's, that's uh, recorded for us in Acts 15. So most believe that Peter is still in Jerusalem. His ministry is in Judea. That's Peter's ministry at this point. Peter doesn't start traveling until a little bit later. He does eventually end up in Rome, but it would be, it would be incorrect to say that Peter's in Rome. There is absolutely no evidence of that. It's too early for him to be in Rome. All right, now, in verse 2 through verse 10 is an amazing, quite stunning thanksgiving section. And that's the way I outlined it, the thanksgiving. Paul is a pastor. I mean, he's a theologian, he's a missionary, but he's a pastor. And he has an, he has an enormous, gracious, compassionate pastor's heart. And as a pastor, remember, pastor means shepherd. Pastor is from a Latin word which means shepherd. So as a pastor slash shepherd, before you want to slam somebody along the side of their face with a theological two-by-four, that was supposed to be somewhat humorous. I don't know <laughs> if you got that. So before you correct them, before you point out where they're in error, what do you want to do? You want to build them up? You want to encourage them? You want to affirm the things that they're doing right? It's like when we discipline our children. You know, well, at least that's what we're supposed to do. We want to make sure that we're not so harsh that we just beat them down to a pulp where they have a feeling of worthlessness. That's not the way you do it. So Paul has this genius of saying things that will be so affirming and so building them up. So that's what he does. Look at verse 2. Now, I like how the NIVs translated this, so that's what I'm reading from. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayer. Anything strike you there about that sentence? About Paul? About his life? About his priorities? He has compassion for those who are members. Okay. 
Anything else? That's that's right. What are the modifying words here of Paul's prayer life? <laughs> we always thank God for all of you. And then and the NIV has really captured the verb tense well here and continually mention you in our prayer. What does what does that tell you about Paul's prayer life? Constant all the time. Yeah, this is not a guy who segmented his life. Okay, I'm going to pray for 15 minutes. And here's a guy, he modeled what he says to us at the end of this book, in chapter 5, pray without ceasing. Paul modeled that. And here he's saying it. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Now that doesn't mean that, you know, 24 hours a day Paul's praying. That's obviously not what it means. But it's just Paul is this, He's in this constant framework of talking to God. And I don't think it would be incorrect is whenever the Thessalonians came into his mind, he prayed for them. Now remember, it hadn't been too long since he had been with them. So he's on their mind, or uh, they are on his mind, excuse me. So it's just, it's kind of a, just a neat way. I, you know, if somebody would say this to me, I would regard this as terribly affirming, terribly encouraging, and really significant that somebody is praying for me that much. See what I'm, do you get what I'm trying to get at here? I mean, if you're going to really encourage people, you're going to really affirm people, regardless of errors that you've got to correct, send a message to them. You are so important to me. I always pray for you, and I'm continually mentioning you in my prayers. How do we do this? in our own lives with people and so that we're doing this. How, how do you see that? Well, I think, you know, I, Fred, it's hard to be real silver bullet type response to your question, but I think it is a challenge to us to think about our prayer life, not, not in that we have a time of prayer, you might have prayer lists, however you, you do that, but to really, Lord, help me to understand in my life what praying without ceasing looks like in my life. So it's a request. It's a, it's a, it's a, Show me. Yeah. I mean, to, what it looks like for me. Yeah. But the, yeah. the admonition of the Bible, New Testament, of course, especially, is we are to be kind of in a mindset of talking to God. You know, I don't think it's wrong. That's not the right word. I don't think it would be incorrect just applicationally that I am just talking to God throughout my day. Thanking him for this, praising him for this. Somebody's name comes into my mind, Lord, be with John. I just made that up. Be with John. I don't know why you want me to pray for him, but his name just came. I pray for him, Lord. I think that's the kind of prayer life that Paul must have had. I, am, I told you this before. I'm, I'm almost sure I've mentioned it here. My wife has taught me more about prayer than any class, any theologian, any class in seminary I ever had. Because she lives it. And it's especially since she's gotten sick. I mean, it's just, she's taught me that it is, it's part of her life to just bring the Lord into everything in her life. Talking to him about everything that's going on. That's what I see Paul saying here. It's a challenge to us. Uh, Jim? I, was gonna, I, mean, I, I don't want this to sound negative at all, but the, the word in, any, in the New American Standard is I mention you in my prayer. 
it sounds pretty minimal. Um, and, and, you know, maybe that's a model for us. I mean, we don't have to be intensely praying for all the things that are going on in somebody's life, but just simply asking the Lord to intervene or just to, to meet their needs or give them wisdom or something like that. Maybe that's maybe that's just enough to set God off and he really kind of unleashes the blessings. Well, I think that's... And, and that is... That is the 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 best way to translate the term is mention, but it's in it's in the continuous present in Greek. Now that no that doesn't mean anything, but it, what that means in trying to understand is what the NIV has done in they, their translation continually mention. In other words, the, 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 I believe the thought of this is that the Thessalonians are on his mind a lot, and he's mentioning them to the Lord. I think, Jim, it, a, applicationally, as their name comes into his mind, he prays for them. That's what I think it means. Is there... In that continuous present, that's what it means. Uh, and I, that's what my wife's, my wife's approach, in addition to what she prays in the morning, is when somebody comes into, some name or into, comes into her mind, she prays for them. Because she thinks the Lord wants her to pray for them. She's just continually mentioning them. If that is what... The, and I think there's a sensitivity there that um, I, I think that that's helpful for us to think about that. Certainly our children. He probably is using more than 25% of his brain to remember. <laughs> I mean, we only well, use yeah. 25% of our brain. So there's, I think if you, the closer you get to God, probably the more I've, I've found, the more I read the Bible, the better my memory is. Good. I mean, it's just, you can remember way more stuff. Yeah. Yeah. He gives you the ability to do more stuff yeah. and probably think about more people and pray for more people if you do it. Yeah, because you're getting all the other junk out of your mind and you're putting. That's, that's right. <laughs> well, I mean, no, you're, that's right. You're I'm, growing. You're, you're yeah, growing. exactly. And, and God, if, if, if you, I don't know, if you, if you never try, your brain is going to sit there. That's exactly right. Now, what I want to do, I'm going to keep going here. What I want to do is I want to read verse 3. And as I read verse 3, I want you to look for the three key words of verse 3. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your, our, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What are the three key words? Faith, love, and hope. Thank you, John. You see those words anywhere else in the Bible? They're kind of three really important words. Paul is, Paul is affirming them, encouraging them, that these are people, despite their challenges and shortcomings and some of their theological misunderstandings, they're people of faith. They're people of love. And they're people of hope. The phrase is, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hope always has as its object a person, the Lord Jesus. It's not some unfulfilled, ethereal wish. It's a hope that's centered in a person and all the promises that he made. And it's just, I, I, I really like that. And I'm glad you caught that, John, because... What you see there is these, these are people, they're getting it. These are people who really understand 
what the Christian walks all about. It's a walk of faith. It's a walk of love is that other-centered. It says, you know, your labor, your work, you know, what you did prompted by love. That's agape, that other-centered uh, uh, love. And endurance, they persevere. They hang in there. Why? Because they have the hope. So these are people, faith, hope, and love. Good church, despite their shortcomings. Now, verse 4 and 5 helps us to have um, kind of the context of why he's thankful for them. For we know, or you could translate that, because we know, brothers or brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because your gospel, our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us. Now, let me stop there. All right, what you see here then is Paul is just summarizing what we read about in Acts 17. When the gospel, and this is always the case, I want you to think with me about this. Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Three things. Content of the gospel. Good news. Joel? The good news of Jesus. All right, the good news about Jesus. The gospel is sometimes translated the good news. The good news about Jesus. He is the Messiah. His death, burial, and resurrection purchase redemption. It's available to you by faith, and so on. That's the good news. That's the gospel. So Paul says, it was presented to you with words. What does that mean? I said it to you. I preached it to you. That's what I preached. But he says, it isn't only with words. And then he adds, it was with power, Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. All right, now let's think about that. What's that telling us? What is that telling us about someone that responds to the gospel? Why do they respond to the gospel? Because you have a cleverly worded, well thought through, highly articulate presentation that you've honed and sharpened, hired two advisors whom you paid $2,000 each to make sure you've got it just perfect. It's about God. Spirit power. All right. 
Now, that, but that doesn't mean that we don't hone, sharpen, and make sure we know what we're talking about. It doesn't mean that. It means you do make sure you know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But Paul is saying it isn't only with words. It's with power. That word, we get our word dynamite from that. It's dunamis. It's a, it's, it's a very significant, uh, engaged, enabled, supernatural power from God. And, and I didn't, for the interest of space, I didn't write Holy Spirit, but it's the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us, I wish we could take time to do this, the Bible talks a number of places about how the Holy Spirit prepares the person's heart to respond to the gospel. Now, this isn't based on any, anything in the scriptures. It's based just on some research that evangelists have, have done. That the, before the typical person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, they hear the gospel at least seven times. In some cases, it's more than that. And it's the Spirit of God just preparing and cultivating and wooing. So, deep conviction, a, a deep-seated conviction, because the end, and that's really the intent of this, the end of this is that it's true. The deep conviction means the deep conviction is absolutely true. And I don't, it was a Mark or somebody said that when a person responds to the gospel, it is really, it's really the work of God. So then, who are we? We're just the messenger. We're just the instrument. Now, I'm saying all that because that's what Paul is saying to them. I, I remember, I remember <coughs> your incredible demonstration of the changed life. Your people of faith, your people of love, your people of hope. And I'm really thankful for the opportunity we had to present the gospel to you with words <coughs> that the Holy Spirit energized and empowered. Because when you responded, it was because of what he did in your heart. So therefore, as it is accurate to say, when someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, it's a miracle. It is really a miracle. The greatest miracle in this room, the greatest evidence of God's supernatural power in this room, is every single one of you, if you've put your faith in Christ. You are a miracle of God's grace. Nothing explains you except that. And that is, honestly, that's, that's what Paul is saying to them. You are a miracle of God's grace, the, you Thessalonians. That you are people who exhibit faith, love, and hope. The key lifestyle uh, terms of the Christian life is a miracle. Because when we came to you and presented it, it was really the power of God at work. That's why the, the uh, I think that's in Ephesians, but... It tells us that when a person comes to faith in Christ, the angels break out in joyous worship. Another one, Lord, praise your name. I hope nobody in whom is dead. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said that. But it's another one. And they're just and they stand in awe of this. They just, they stand in awe of what God is doing. Because angels don't need redemption and they don't understand it. And it's just, Paul is using that language to, to, to praise 
what God has done in the lives of these people. Why are they exhibiting the faith, love, and hope? Because they are trophies of God's grace. The only thing that explains them is the power, the spirit, and the deep conviction that this is absolutely true. And it transforms you. So these are, every one of you in this room, if you've put your faith in Jesus, everyone you're saying, this is describing you. You are a trophy of God's grace. And if I understand, this again, this, if I understand a passage in the book of Ephesians, in eternity, when all the redeemed are gathered together, it tells us that the Lord Jesus is going to hold us up and say, this is what it's been all about. We are the trophies of God's grace. Because the only thing that will explain that we're there is what Jesus did for us. And we applied it to our lives by faith. All right. We got the introduction and five verses done this morning. That's almost a miracle. So I'm really glad. Now tomorrow, what I want to do is I the next the next section which finishes this Thanksgiving section, there's some wonderful truths here that we can apply. And then we'll start to transition into chapter two. All right? So if you have some minutes, you're not doing anything, read the rest of chapter one and chapter two. I would be really pleased. I think the Lord would be too, but don't worry about it if you don't get it done. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for the men around this table, uh, in this room. Thank you that they are indeed the trophies of God's grace if they have put their faith in the Lord Jesus and his finished work. Thank you that we have the now, the power, and the enablement to exhibit the, the, the faith, the love, and the hope that's to characterize our lives. We thank you for uh, one another. We thank you for this opportunity in the middle of the day on Wednesday to gather together and to be encouraged to be stimulated, uh, to be uh, um, built up in the, in the Word of God so that we can be the agents of your transforming grace. And so, Lord, therefore, it's important for us as we leave today to take away uh, from our time of study to get, get together uh, this morning this, this incredible dimension of your grace, that salvation, hearing the gospel, is not just the presentation, but it's the power it's the Spirit's work, and it's the deep conviction that this is absolutely true, and it does transform us. So help us as we go now our separate ways, back to our offices, our places of work and business. Lord, help us to be good representatives of you, because we do indeed want to represent Jesus well. We pray it in his name. Amen. See you next week.